0: Good evening. One of the outward and visible signs of the inward grace that is the recent magnificent gift from Mr. Breslauer is our new laser printer, which came in last Monday, and I have been doing very little ever since. One of the first fruits of said laser printer is what may be regarded as the final draft of the 1989 rare Books school brochure. I have copies of it for you uh, which you may have after the lecture as a reward. (laughs) The next lecture in this series is next Monday when Christopher Ridgway, the librarian of Castle Howard, who, if all goes well, lands at Newark as we speak, Uh, will be speaking on the sociology of the English Country House Library, which promises to be very stimulating. And I sincerely hope so, since he is giving the identical speech at Toronto, Penn, Princeton, Montreal, Chicago, Kentucky, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and elsewhere. If it isn't good, we can have him come back in December and give it to us again after he's given it 17 times across the country. It's our pleasure this evening to welcome David Seidberg, Head of Special Collections at UCLA, speaking on a topic which was, to those who know how things work around here, hardly of his own devising as regards the title. But... The subject, I think, is a most interesting one, as money usually is, and it's a great pleasure to welcome Zaidberg here this evening.
1: I understand it's a tradition to apologize for the title of these lectures, but uh, um, I first have to preface my talk with an apology for the uneven quality of the slides that I'll show you which have come from a great variety of sources and the really bad ones I think are mine. Um, The title of the talk reminds me of a line from Moss Hart to Kitty Carlisle at one of their anniversary dinners at which he raised his glass to her and said, you've stuck by me through thick. Uh, Growth in the face of prosperity alludes, of course, to the 1982 RBMS pre-conference in Philadelphia, growth in the face of adversity, the business of special collections in the 1980s. Tonight's title was Terry's idea, and I think a good one in the way that it was intended. That is to relate what's happened at UCLA, especially in the past 25 years or so, to what seems to be happening in most other academic libraries since the end of the development boom of the 1960s. And it occurred to me after the title was published that you might perceive it as a portent of another egotistical romp of one-upsmanship, not only how we do it good at UCLA but how we do it better. And I wanted to assure you that I'm really as put off by that prospect as you probably are What Terry really had in mind by the title was for me as a relative newcomer, I've been there only four years now, um, and still a relatively objective observer, to tell you how UCLA's library has become one of the major academic research libraries in fewer than 60 years, and about some of the people who made the library what it is today. And so I thought I'd begin by giving um, a fair amount of historical background with the a lot of interesting people, but I also thought that you needed to have um, a context that would be familiar, so let me, does this go on? The first slide, (laughs) Um, a familiar reference point, I hope. This bird's eye perspective reminds us of early cartographic and panoramic depictions, especially of coastlines and landfalls as one would sail upon them. And Los Angeles is here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, At the end of a vast, vague, and uncharted geographic and intellectual wasteland, Many probably still find LA's location on this view apt, America's terminal wasteland, but most of you here have looked beyond Hollywood glitz and excessive consumption to the cultural developments of the city museums, performing arts, and research resources. UCLA, I believe, has made an important contribution to this part of the growth of the city. Now, if Steinberg's view had been made in 1925 instead of 1976, it wouldn't have seemed nearly so exaggerated. Okay, this is is what the uh, site of the UCLA campus looked like in 1925. Uh, And let me give you, this is one of the poorer slides, sorry. A little orientation. This is Sunset Boulevard running around here. Westwood Boulevard, Gilgard Boulevard and this is where Westwood Village is. The University of California, which was founded at Berkeley in 1879, had by 1910 so many applications from the southern part of the state that it was decided that a southern branch was necessary. By 1919, the University of California had established a campus in converted office buildings on Vermont Avenue near downtown but the Regents already recognized that the rapid growth of California population, particularly in Los Angeles, demanded a full campus. The West End, as you can see, was relatively undeveloped and therefore cheap. So by 1925, the Regents had settled upon this parcel of 465 acres and had established a building committee with the goal of moving the students onto the Westwood campus by 1929. By then, the four buildings that today form the central quad of the campus were completed and classes began in the fall quarter. What happened? Okay, this isn't advancing now. Oh, sorry. Now I have to focus. Okay, Okay, and again, to orient you, this was Sunset Boulevard here, Westwood. Here is the original quad of the campus. We've got Royce Hall, Haynes, Kinsey, this is Moore Hall, and that's the uh, original library today named for Lawrence Clark Powell, and it functions primarily as an undergraduate library today, the home of the library school, and of two divisions of my department, the University Archives and the Oral History Program. Now this is how the campus looked more recently, and again, to give you an idea of the growth in a short period of time, this is the Powell Library again, and here are those four quad buildings. Again, Sunset, here, Westwood Boulevard, here. We know, though, that the development of the facility does not a great university make. While the campus was growing in the 1920s and early 30s, this period was also special in the development of Los Angeles' cultural community, when other important libraries, for example, were established. The Henry Huntington Library and Art Gallery opened in 1928 and the William Andrews Clark uh, Library was, uh, was founded in 1926 and bequeathed to UCLA in 1934. The mid-1920s was also the time when a diverse group of people met each other and established themselves in Los Ange- as Los Angeles' intellectual community. They were to have a profound influence over the next 50 years on the development of the UCLA libraries. While there are many players, perhaps we should begin with these three. Jake Zaitlin, Ward Ritchie, and Lawrence Clark Powell. This photograph was taken at the Clark Library on the occasion of Ward Ritchie's 75th birthday. Ritchie and Powell were childhood friends, went off together to Occidental College in 1924 and to France after graduation. Powell worked on a dissertation on Jeffers at Dijon, and Ritchie apprenticed himself to the master printer Francois-Louis Schmid in Paris, and then returned to Los Angeles in 1931 to begin his own printing career. LCP returned shortly thereafter. Jake blew into L.A. in 1925, having hitchhiked from Texas and arriving with 10 cents in his pocket. He actually says that in his oral history. By 1927, though, he had established his first bookshop at the corner of Sixth and Hope Streets in downtown. And in 1934, the same year that UCLA acquired the Clark Library, and when Jake was truly established and beginning to expand, he hired Larry Powell as a secretary stenographer. In Fortune and Friendship, Powell writes, I worked for two and a half years for Jake Zaitlin, and the experience was fully as educational and useful as the years at Occidental and Dijon. It proved the the base on which my subsequent authority as a bookman was established, and I met the best people, not only of Los Angeles, but from near and far, the bookish people, rich and poor, powerful and humble, who were drawn to the shop, It was the cultural heart of the city. Lawyers, doctors, clergymen, educators, writers, actors, musicians came and went, browsed and bought, and I knew them all. Powell established friendships with people whose associations and collections would figure prominently in the growth of the UCLA libraries. Robert Ernest Cowan, bookseller and bibliographer to William Andrews Clark, physician and Leonardo collector, Elmer Belt, historian and political reformer Carrie McWilliams, bookseller H. Richard Archer, who would become Powell's first Clark librarian, Southern California historian W. W. Robinson, photographers Edward Weston and Will Connell, L.A. Times literary editor Paul Jordan Smith, and architect Lloyd Wright, son of Frank Lloyd Wright, just to name a few. By 1936, Powell knew that he had to go his own way from Zeitlin, and at the suggestion of Althea Warren and Albert C. of the Los Angeles Public Library, who told him he should be buying books, not selling them, Powell changed directions and went off to Berkeley to earn his library degree. A year later, upon his return to Los Angeles, he first cataloged a D.H. Lawrence collection for Jake Zaitlin, and then worked for Warren at the LA Public Library for the rest of the year. He then heard of an entry level position at UCLA and went to see John Goodwin, UCLA's first university librarian. This is one of mine. Goodwin is probably least known of our five university librarians, most likely because he was not the bookman or collection builder his successors have been. But he made several shrewd decisions in the formation of the library and hiring Powell was only one of them. In 1936, for example, he had purchased Robert Ernest Cowan's Californiana collection, and Powell's first job at UCLA in February 1938 was to accession this collection. The collection was actually the second Cowan had formed from his bibliography, having sold the first to the Bancroft Library but it was one of the first major special collections UCLA had owned apart from the holdings that came with the Clark bequest. Over the next five years from 1938 to 43 thanks to Goodwin's dictatorial style of management Powell didn't rise in the ranks of the library staff but he rose in the esteem of the university administration and faculty for his selections for the collections and in the eyes of his fellow librarians across the country through his professional activities and his writing. When both Goodwin's retirement as university librarian and that of Corey Sanders as Clark curator came up in 1943, Powell in one great leap negotiated and won both positions, arguing that as Clark director, he could coordinate the development of both libraries. And in 1943, probably also saved the salary at that point. Over the next 17 years, Powell increased the UCLA libraries tenfold from 285,000 volumes to over two million, developed the special collections on campus and at the Clark, and brought the very best people on, uh, uh, to campus. He appointed Richard Archer almost immediately as Clark librarian. He hired Robert Vosper as head of acquisitions in 1944. He made Louise Darling medical librarian, and in 1945 and 46 hired three of my predecessors, Neil Harlow, Andy Horn, and Wilbur Smith. In reflecting upon my predecessors, I find that each made his own contribution that brought the Department of Special Collections to a world-class level in a specific area. Neil Harlow on the left here was the first head of the department and an expert on California history with experience in the Bancroft Library and the California State Library. By the time Neil joined Powell's ranks, the library had gathered enough rare material to formalize the department. Besides making plan- the plans necessary for its physical development from a locked cage to a full department with its own reference service, Neal continued to develop the book holdings, especially the Californiana, while Andy Horn a step, handled the manuscripts. Andy came to the library from the history department, where he received his PhD. LCP's ubiquitous presence had also garnered an active collection of literary manuscripts. Henry Miller was his neighbor, for example, and by 1948, the first of the many Miller acquisitions arrived at the library for Andy to catalog. Some examples of collections Powell also brought in include the papers of Kenneth Rexroth, Irving Stone, Guy Endor, and Franz Werfel, and correspondence and manuscripts of Richard Altington. Andy had his hands full, but rose not only to the task, but also to head of the department when Neil left to become university librarian at the University of British Columbia in 1952. While head of the department for a short period of time, Andy continued to concentrate on manuscripts and gave book collecting responsibilities to Wilbur Smith. Now I've already apologized to Wilbur for this slide, and I'm going to have to apologize to you too. This was at a departmental party. Um, Wilbur is the son of Paul Jordan Smith, who was the literary editor at the LA Times, as I said before. Wilbur grew up in that cultural circle that centered on Jake Schott, and LCP recognized his natural bookmanship as a second-generation maturation from that exposure. Wilbur's forte, as many of you know, is children's books. Powell and Vosper got our children's book collection started with the purchase of the Oliver Percival collection in 1946. After Andy Horn left UCLA to become university librarian at North Carolina in 1952, Wilbur, in turn, succeeded him as head of the department and added several major children's collections, Barnett in 1954, Meeks in 1959, and Karshner in 1960, to form what Bryden Alderson recently called one of the world's great collections of English-language children's books. Wilbur also became friends with Dalte Welch. And at Welch's untimely death, Ann Welch donated to the department his English children's books, the complement to the Great American Collection at the American Antiquarian Society, to which he also added Dalty's papers in appreciation of Wilbur's friendship. Wilbur also cultivated contemporary writers following Powell's example and for the children's book collection landed the original drawings and manuscripts of Holling Clancy Holling, the creator of Pagoo and Paddle to the Sea, and one of his greatest coups, those as well of Theodore Geisel, better known as Dr. Seuss. There's really not enough time to do justice to any of my predecessors here. To focus on Wilbur's great contributions to the department and children's book books ignores, for example, the acquisition of the Michael Sadler collection of 19th century British fiction or the papers of detective fiction writer Raymond Chandler to name but two major acquisitions in completely different subject areas which he had handled as head of of the department. By the time of Powell's retirement as university librarian in 1961 to take up the deanship of the university's new graduate school of library and information science full time, The momentum for collection development, particularly the acquisition of Special Collections, had become almost unstoppable. If I've dwelt at length on Powell's influence of the development of Special Collections at UCLA, it's because in reflecting on my predecessors in Special Collections, I see his insight, which he cultivated in all of them, and which still pervades the atmosphere of the library and the spirit of its librarians today. Again, in Fortune and Friendship, Powell writes From the first, my collecting for UCLA libraries was not geared to immediate needs, although there was steady buying with them in mind. I was seeking also to amass materials for scholars to come, to give the library in a short generation the maturity acquired over the years by the older institutions. Powell implemented this policy with good librarians to whom he gave the freedom to exercise their judgment and the means to do so. This last element, the means to do so, the prosperity part of my title, has never been there as manna from heaven, perhaps with the exception of the Clark bequest, but one instead from the university administrators, faculty library committees, and private benefactors by the librarians through persuasive arguments founded upon the analysis and assessment of the collections. To emphasize this point, I should reiterate here the chronology of UCLA development in the context of America's and California's economic fortunes. While the present campus was developed during Los Angeles' oil boom of the 1920s, classes began there only a few weeks before the stock market crash of 1929. Yet Goodwin found the means to add collections such as the Cowan Collection, and Powell followed up through the latter years of the Depression and through the Second World War. Yes, there was the post-war boom of the 1950s when Powell and his librarians were able to acquire great collections such as the Sadler and the Percival, the Harmsworth collection for the Clark, and the Esweer-Mitchell collection of of medicine, a gift of Dr. Elmer Bell. But one should also remember that we were always and are still a state university. Subject to the rise and fall of revenues and the swing of politics, we have suffered through the taxpayer's revolt of Proposition 13 in 1978 which has brought our public school system, by the way, once ranked with New York's to near the bottom of the state's roster. And we once had a governor named Ronald Reagan, whose budget officer, when told the University of, Cal- of the University of California's needs, suggested that the Bancroft Library be sold off to meet the regent's request, because, quote, who uses those old books anyway, unquote. Powell's philosophy, to amass collections, not just books, to hire the best librarians to carry forth collection development policy and to give them the means to do so has carried down to the present day through the tenures of Powell's successors, Bob Vosper, Paige Ackerman, and Russell Shank. It's Paige, Bob Vosper, Larry Powell, and Russell Shank, also at Richie's 75th birthday. Let's see if I can focus that. Vosper succeeded Powell in July 1961, but his appointment as university librarian was not a promotion from the ranks. We have to backtrack 10 years here to pick up Vosper's thread in the development of the library. I said before that Powell had an eye for talented librarians, and a measure of his perception is the number who rose within the ranks at UCLA and then went on to university librarian positions of their own elsewhere. Vosper became Assistant University Librarian and then moved on to the head position at Kansas in 1951. His leaving caused the quick succession of department heads and special collections. Harlow succeeded Vosper, then became University Librarian at the University of British Columbia. Horn succeeded Harlow, then took the head position at North Carolina. Eventually, they all came back to Los Angeles. Bob Vosper is University Librarian. Neil Harlow into an active retirement, and Andy Horn to succeed Powell as Dean of the library school, when Powell retired from UCLA for good for the drier pastures of the University of Arizona Library School, where he continues to lecture and write today. Bosper's move to Kansas is most interesting, not because he returned to UCLA 10 years later to succeed Powell but because it brought him into contact first with the principal player in the prosperity of the university, uh, UCLA Library, Franklin D. Murphy, who was chancellor at the University of Kansas and who hired Bob away. This picture of Dr. Murphy is during the 1985 visit from the International Bibliophiles when he was giving his tour of the sculpture garden to them. And I think it's very typical of his enthusiasm for everything that goes on. Oops, sorry, wait a second. Everything that goes on at at the university. Well, I won't dwell on Bob Vosper's years at Kansas. Most of you will recall Sandy Mason's excellent talk at the nineteen eighty one RBMS pre conference in San Francisco on Vosper and Murphy in the Great American Desert in which she recounted the development of Kansas's general libraries and the Spencer Library to national and world-class status in a state university that was culturally and physically deprived when they began in 1951. Bosper and Murphy were to repeat the performance at UCLA ten years later in a state university that suffered political and physical deprivations comparable to those of Lawrence, if not the cultural ones. Powell's development of the library is even more remarkable when we look at the political position of UCLA again. Remember that UCLA was established as a southern branch of Berkeley and in doing so the Regents also established an attitude from the central administration in Berkeley to the Regents to the state legislature to the governor that permeated the thinking about how UCLA should be supported. Throughout his tenure, Powell fought steadily for increased support of of the library's general collection development and operational expansion. The great collections arrived through private benefactions cultivated personally over many years and occasionally through special dispensations. But the day-to-day operation continued to go begging up north. Distant relative and poor relation were the images often used to describe UCLA in appeals to the legislature. Powell once used another image. Berkeley, he said, gets support in yards, UCLA gets it in inches. It became, excuse me, in becoming chancellor at UCLA in 1960, Franklin Murphy changed that attitude once and for all. There have been few university administrators in America in the 20th century who combined the tough business sense necessary to be a chancellor or a president with scholarship comparable with the faculty, and a bookman's connoisseurship uh, of the resources for scholarship, the special collections that puts the word research in the Descriptor University Research Library. I've had the privilege of being associated with two such men, Bill Tolley at Syracuse and now Franklin Murphy at UCLA.
0: In our generation
1: of librarianship, Harry Ransom at Texas and Pascal Twyman at Tulsa are the only other two that come to my mind, although you may think of a few more. To understand how Franklin Murphy made UCLA and its library what they are today, you have to know him. He's a Kansas native, a graduate of the University of Kansas, and a third-generation physician who was graduated first in his medical school class at Penn. He once referred to himself as the only dropout of the four generations of physicians in his family, his son's a cardiologist at UCLA today, because he left his practice for academia. After the Second World War, he returned to Kansas City to practice medicine and was also asked to chair a medical curriculum committee for the University of Kansas School of Medicine. Committee's report recommended a new dean of the school to implement the curriculum changes. The chancellor was so impressed with the report and Murphy's presentation that he asked Murphy to take the position. In accepting the position as dean at the age of 32, Murphy is thought to be the youngest person to hold such an appointment, and his academic career was launched. <clears throat> Excuse me. His success with the Kansas Medical School over the next three years made him the top choice for the position of chancellor, at Kansas in 1951, which he held for nine years as Sandy Moore excuse me, as Sandy Mason has recounted. Since his days at Kansas, Dr. Murphy's had the philosophy that one's creativity in an administrative position has a duration of about 10 years. In an interview, he once said, "At the end of that time, you're likely to be more of a housekeeper than a creator, and you've probably bent enough noses and blackened enough eyes so that you'd better find something new." In 1960, he was asked to apply for the chancellorship at UCLA. The timing was good for Larry Powell, too. LCP had tried several times over his years at UCLA to get a library school established. The opportunity finally came in 1960 and coincided with the arrival of Franklin Murphy as the new chancellor. Powell's interest at this point lay in the school more so than library administration. He told Murphy of his intentions and that the way was clear for him to appoint his own librarian, giving him the opportunity to bring Bob Vosper back to UCLA to repeat, hopefully, the success in Lawrence. In the 1960-61 academic year, Powell served as both librarian and library school dean, allowing Vosper a year's notice at Kansas. So by 1960-61. UCLA was well prepared to take its overall development and that of the library to higher levels. Dr. Murphy immediately went to work on the regents and the state legislature with the goal of making UCLA an excellent university in its own right, not in the shadow of Berkeley or the UC system. And Murphy meant excellence in all of the university's endeavors, professional schools of law, medicine, nursing, architecture and urban planning, business, engineering, education, education, library science and social welfare, undergraduate and graduate programs in the humanities, arts, and social sciences, art collections, athletics, and of course his favorite, the library. He led the university by example and gave everyone there the opportunity to be the best. That's the true definition of UCLA's prosperity. In the library, some of the opportunity was already there thanks to Powell. Upon his arrival, Bob Vosper was able to benefit almost immediately from the personal investments he and Powell had made in the late 40s and early 50s and those Powell had made while Bob was at Kansas. In 1961, Dr. Elmer Belt, shown here on the right, already a major donor to UCLA's medical library, gave the university his Leonardo collection. Dr. Murphy immediately went to work to Establish a home for the collection and raise funds from the Norton Simon and Cress Foundations to establish the library and the School of Art. In the same year, 1961, Dr. John Benjamin donated his superb collection of medical history, and by 1964, Murphy Vosper and biomedical librarian Louise Darling established a history and special collections division in the biomedical library around the core gifts of the Benjamin collection and the Mitchell collection which Dr. Belt had donated in 1951. In just the past four years I've been at UCLA, Dr. Murphy has raised more than one million dollars to endow further collection development for this division alone. 1961 was also the year in which Warren Howell offered for sale the Templeton Crocker collection of 45 Aldean titles to Wilbur Smith and the Department of Special Collections Wilbur had his rare books librarian, Brooke Whiting, help him prepare a proposal for Dr. Murphy's consideration because the sum of $13,245 for the 45 titles was too much for regular funds even then. The purchase opportunity rekindled Dr. Murphy's long-standing interest in Italy and the Renaissance, a rekindling which I suppose could be described today as a conflagration. But I am getting to slightly ahead of myself and I'll return to the further discussion of the Italian collections in the department when I relate below what's happened since I've been there. I need to complete the historical picture to give the full context of special collections at UCLA today. Murphy and Vosper continued to bring in major collections again following Powell's precept. In Bob's tenure from 1961 to 73, Among the major collections he found for the library were the Manasian collection of Persian manuscripts, the Cummings collection of Judaic and Hebraica, the Albert Boni photographic archive. Each time, Vosper presented Murphy with a detailed description, including the way the collection would support curricular and research developments on campus, and each time Murphy provided the funds. In the Department of Special Collections, Wilbur Smith worked steadily on the children's books, as I mentioned before, and Brooke Whiting developed the 19th and 20th century British and American literary holdings and the Aldine imprints. Wilbur also also hired, along with Brooke in the mid-50s, James V. Mink, who like Andy Horn, was a product of the UCLA History Department. I'm sorry, I don't have a slide of Jim Mink to show you. But Jim's first priority was to develop the university archives holdings into a properly functioning division of the department, and he performed this duty admirably. In his own research, Jim had become fascinated with the work of Alan Nevins, who pioneered the field of oral history. Jim saw the potential of this medium as a historical record and attended a meeting at Lake Arrowhead at which the National Oral History Association was founded. By 1959, Jim was able to convince Wilbur and Larry Powell that the university should support its own oral history program. Powell worked to get startup funds with the history department, and Vosper and Murphy funded the oral history program permanently. Jim went on to serve as chair of the National Oral History Association and has now had a prize name for him in the organization in recognition of his contributions in the field. Today, the UCLA oral history program is ranked with Columbia's as one of the top programs in the country, and one of my program staff members, Richard Smith, serves as executive secretary of the National Oral History Association. Near the end of Vosper's term as university librarian, Wilbur became ill and was forced to retire early. Jim Mink succeeded him as department head, and he and Brooke continued until their retirements in 1983. Jim Davis succeeded Brooke Whiting as Rare Books Librarian in 1983, and I became the fifth head of Special Collections in April 1984. Paige Ackerman, who was in that group picture of the university librarian, succeeded Bob Vosper in 1973 and served four years. Page had begun as a reference librarian for Goodwin, became assistant librarian to Powell, and chief associate librarian for Vosper. Her appointment was a logical conclusion to a dedicated career at UCLA. In her short service before retirement, she brought in the Gilbert Harrison collection of Gertrude Stein and the papers of Anna East Nin to complement the Henry Miller collection, to name her two most notable acquisitions. Russell Shank also pictured in the group photo became the present university librarian in 1977 and has faced the unenvi- en- excuse me <clears throat> unenviable task of bringing our library into the age of technology Russell has not only done that providing us with Orion one of the most sophisticated online systems among libraries but he's also seen to it that there- the tradition of Powell and Murphy and Vosper and Ackerman to provide the opportunity to excel continues today in our collection development. The state budget for the libraries this year is 22 million dollars with an additional eight million dollars from private sources. To appreciate the rapid development of our libraries one need only realize that most of the people I've mentioned here are not only still alive but still active in their retirements. Only John Goodwin, Andy Horn, Richard Archer, and last year, Jake Zeitlin have passed away. Among my own predecessors, Neil Harlow has just published an important work on the mapping of California. Wilbur Smith, although frail, makes weekly visits to the department and offers suggestions from the children's book catalogs he continues to read. And Jim Mink continues to conduct interviews for our university history series and the oral history program. So with that background in mind, let me tell you about special collections at UCLA today. There are seven separate special collections libraries, each autonomous. The Clark Library, which most of you know, has its holdings in 17th and 18th century English literature and culture with particular strength in Dryden. It also has its famous Oscar Wilde collection and most of the university's collections of fine printing. Vosper, by the way, continued to serve as director after his retirement as university librarian with Bill Conway as the Clark librarian. I think you know that Tom Wright and John Bidwell serve there admirably today, and John Brewer has just begun this fall as director of the Clark. This is Arnold Schoenberg Hall which houses two other special collections. The Music Library, which has its own manuscript collection, including the Ernest Talk Archive and papers of Andre Previn and Eric Zeisel. And it also houses the Archive of Popular American Music, which was established as a purchase in the music department and developed by music professor David Morton. It became a formal part of the library system in 1985, and has wonderful holdings like original scores from movies, and some 1920s music, and today holds about 900,000 separate pieces, ranked third nationally after the Library of Congress and the New York Public Library. Dixon Hall of Art holds the Elmer Belt Library of Leonardo Materials. And here is just an example. One of the illuminated manuscripts um, dated about 1450. uh, It's a book of hours for the use of Paris. Let me focus this. This is the reading room in the Biomedical Library for the History and Special Collections Division. And if you look closely, that's Kathy Donahue, the current incumbent, um, uh, an excellent librarian in her own right in the history of science. And this is the uh, library that holds the John Benjamin and the S. Weir mitchell collections. From the Benjamin, we have classics like Harvey's, de Motu Cortis, and Benjamin unfortunately inscribed his copies before he knew better. Nineteen fifty three he acquired that one. Um, this is a manuscript from the Benjamin collection, a thirteen a uh, German manuscript on urine analysis from about thirteen fifty. Here's Paracelsus's Opera Medico sixteen oh three. Aldrovandi's ornithologii 1640 and what medical collection would be complete without a Copernicus (laughs) the University Research Library holds the theater arts library holdings I didn't bring slides of that they I just didn't have time to to pick from the thousands that they offered their holdings are incredible in film television and radio including stills, photos, posters, archival collections. They have the archives of 20th Century Fox, for example, papers of Preston Sturgis, Stanley Kramer, Charles Lawton, and so forth and so forth. And this is the building that also houses my department, Special Collections, which is the largest of the seven and probably the most eclectic because it's um, covering most of the humanities and social sciences. We have about 200,000 rare books today, about 20 million manuscripts, about 5 million photos, and about half a million prints. Um, I mentioned before our children's book collection. I want to just mention again the collections I think that my predecessors have brought to world-class status. The children's books. This is an original Rackham drawing. uh, We think unpublished. We haven't found it published anywhere yet. Um, and of course, the Sadler Collection, which I only mentioned briefly, which came in Wilbur Smith's time, noted, of course, for its condition and for its uh, complementary co- uh, holdings. Oh, went backwards. Sorry. Of yellowbacks. Um, the Sadler Collection, when we acquired it, had about 9,000 volumes. Brooke Whiting and Jim Davis have brought the number in that collection to almost 20,000 today. And one of the things we intend to do is publish another volume of Sadler, uh, namely all the books that we've acquired since the original uh, purchase. And I guess what you've all been waiting for is what's been happening with the Italian books, because that seems to be the most publicized acquisitions. So I thought what I would do is briefly show you some of the books that we've acquired since I've been there. When I f- walked in the door in April 84, Jim Davis handed me a Greek copy of the museus, the Aldine Musaeus, um, which he had just managed to acquire. And since that time, we've also managed to get a Greek and Latin copy. We also got a blue paper copy. Let me focus this if I can. Oops, wrong button again. Not doing it. Oh, Too many buttons. Sorry. <laughs> the, it, the blue doesn't show up very well, but this is the 1514 Virgil on blue paper. And Jim and I have discovered that this is yet a third variant from the two recorded by Renoir. We haven't worked out all the details yet, but it coincides with neither of the two. Um, Here is Renoir's copy of Loredano, 1558. I don't know if you can see it, but Renoir's inscription is here. And one of the rarest books that we've acquired is Amico's... Uh, epistle to Alexander Camposanus, 1564. This copy and Renoir's copy are the only two recorded and this one is a presentation copy from Camposanus to whom the epistle was addressed. In the area of Italian printing, apart from Maldives, uh we've had some success as well. This is a terrible slide but I w- want to show you this to primarily for the illumination this is Schweinheim and Pernartz's Bible, 1471, which we got in the Judwine sale and in 1984. And then last year in the first Doheny sale, we got Aquinas's Catena Aurea. Oop, I went the wrong way again, sorry. Same border. And Professor Richard Rouse of our history department has identified this as either buyer in the school of the Florentine illuminator Giuliano Amedie. And then the last one I will show you is um, the only book that Jensen printed in German um, in 1477, Carl uh, de Force, bulla Aurea. So those are just a few of the highlights of books turned out uh, about twice a year. Lists of the two Italian collections. We put the Aldines in a separate catalog with an index by Renoir number and then the collection of the first century of Italian printing is alphabetical with an index by printer. To close, let me just try and say what I've been trying to do in the past four years. I think you can see that there is a great resource there and I've had very very little to do with its acquisition. I I really owe that collection to my predecessors. What I saw when I came in in 84 was a need to organize the department a little bit more to continue the collection development and to begin to bring the rich resources out to the public, perhaps in talks like this, but certainly in a publications program that we have just gotten underway. In November, you're going to see the first of a a series of occasional papers that we intend to publish about the holdings at UCLA. The first one is by Professor Rouse, and it is about the illuminated um, 15th century books in the collection, not just Italian, but all of our illuminated 15th century books. I've also tried to follow Powell's example of cultivating current writers and collectors Among the collections acquired since I've arrived include papers of Lawrence Morton, who founded the L.A.'s Monday Evening Concert Series and was a close friend of Igor Stravinsky's. There's a wealth of Stravinsky material in Morton's papers. Papers of Edward Roditi, Norman Cousins, Aram Saroyan. Where we go from here, we need a new building. We're running out of space. We need endowments for collections, believe it or not. And, and also for bibliographic projects. I began with uh, a parodied view of where L.A. is. I will end by saying we don't think this is the view of the world. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs>
0: Thank you, David. I'm always very glad to be reminded of the class of 1975 of this school, whose members included John Bidwell, now the reference and acquisitions librarian at the Clark, Victor Cardell, now in charge of the Popular Music Collection at UCLA, as well as Alice Schreier, who is now head of Delaware, uh, Charles McNamara, curator for books at North Carolina, Sam Strait, assistant university librarian for special collections at... Uh, Brown University, Caroline Hover-Schimmel, of that ilk, and Bruce McKittrick, Bruce McKittrick Rare Books, as well as Lucy Marks, occasional rare book cataloger at the Pierpont Morgan Library and elsewhere, and a number of other celebrities uh, in the field. Not quite all classes are quite that conspicuous. It's also a pleasure to note that Russell Shank the librarian of UCLA is also a Columbia graduate and formerly taught at this school. Another of the consequences of the Breslauer gift is that we have been buying 19th century bindings like a house of fire for our various study collections. The reception following this lecture is in 502, and you are very welcome Uh, to play with the new books as long as you put them back more or less where you find them because they are in an imperfect state of organization at this point I hope you'll all join the speaker for a glass of wine and conversation in room 502